He used syringes and surgical tubing to drain his victim's blood into a mason jar so he could drink it. She managed to escape, but not before John Crutchley drained 40% of her blood. As many as 30 women went missing before anyone guessed this engineer with top-secret government clearance? Eh, not what he seemed. Let's recap. It's almost Thanksgiving in 1985, but the weather in Malabar, Florida doesn't know that it's November because it is still hot AF as 19-year-old Laura walks to the store for cigarettes. So she's maybe halfway there when a car pulls up alongside her. A man in a suit is behind the wheel. He offers her a ride, so she takes a hard look at him. Is he safe? He looks totally normal, late 30s, on the thin side, dark blonde hair, clean cut. He looks like someone's dad, which he is. So she gets in the passenger seat and they set off. The first red flag comes up when he tells her that he needs to stop by his house first to get a notebook that he forgot. So when they get to his place, he asks Laura if she wants to come in. She does not, but it doesn't matter what she wants because her choices disappeared the second she got in his car. Minutes later, John is back. He slips a nylon rope around her neck and he pulls until she passes out. When she comes to, she's in hell. Fast forward 22 hours. A man is driving home when an almost naked woman crawls into the road in front of his car. Her hands and feet are tied, but she's still trying to keep a towel wrapped around her body. So this good Samaritan gets her in the car and he asks, what happened? She's pale. She's shaking. All she can say is, don't take me back there. So he takes her to the hospital where doctors discover that almost 45% of her blood is gone. If she hadn't gotten help, she would have been dead within 12 hours. The first thing Laura remembers is being tied to a kitchen counter. This nice, normal guy who gave her a ride, eh, he's not so nice or normal now. He's naked. He's next to a video camera. Two sentences I never want to hear together. And John sexually assaults her, and then he uses a syringe and surgical tubing to draw the blood from her veins. And she watches in horror as it drains into a jar and he drinks it. She asks, what are you doing? And he says, I'm taking your blood. I'm a vampire. In actuality, John Brennan Crutchley was an engineer, a deranged sadist, probable serial killer, definitely a creepy husband and father, and Lord knows what else. His origin story started with pink dresses. His mother wanted a girl, so she dressed John like one until he was five and his little sister was born. He he did not take it well. At 10, the family moved from West Virginia to Pennsylvania, where John fell in love with electronics, gizmos, all kinds. His tinkering paid off when he landed a job repairing stereos. He wasn't exactly a genius, though. Like math and science, yes, those were his favorite subjects, but languages, English and otherwise, were hard for him. After high school, he went to college for physics, but he struggled with his grades. He met a girl, though, Maude, and he married her. He managed to graduate and land a job as a project engineer at General Motors. He did well there. He was even offered a better position at Delco in Indiana. He did take the job, but he did not take his wife. They divorced in 1971, and Maude, for her part, was glad to be rid of him. She told people that he was sexually violent and he had to start fights with her to get turned on. So four years later, John got a new address, a new wife, and a new business card. 
Electronics Manager at TRW in Fairfax, Virginia. So TRW did a lot of work with NASA and the Defense Department, and John got Pentagon security clearance for his work on a computer language that he was developing for the U.S. Navy. So in between all of those hours at the office, and probably during, John was getting into some pretty kinky stuff. There was nothing he wouldn't try, which apparently is a serial killer red flag, according to FBI profiler Robert Ressler. And he would know because he coined the term serial killer, and he was one of the Fed's first profilers. So John was into pornography, partner swapping, bondage, drinking blood, some kind of sex thing, and group sex. Men, women, it was all on the table for him. John's second wife, Karen, she didn't seem to have the same hang-ups about their sex life as his first wife did. But Robert Ressler devoted quite a few pages to John in his book, Whoever Fights Monsters. And apparently Karen just thought her husband was a kinky guy. Except she didn't really know how dark his appetites were. And she didn't connect her husband with three unsolved murders. There was Deborah Fitzjohn, a 25-year-old who turned up dead in the woods in 1978, almost a year after she disappeared during a date with John. And then there was the Navy messenger, 23-year-old Pamela Kimbrough. She was last seen on March 25th, 1982. Her body was found the next day in the backseat of her car, tied up, sexually assaulted, and strangled. Ten months later, Navy clerk Carol Ann Molnar disappeared from a local nightclub. She was found stuffed under the rocks of a seawall in early May 1983. That same year, Mr. and Mrs. Crutchley and their two-year-old baby boy moved to Malabar, Florida. John was the newest engineer for the Harris Corporation, a tech company that did quite a bit of work for the United States Department of Defense. John's top secret security clearance made him a good fit. The fact that he might have been running from three murders up north made the timing extra ideal. So the police tried, but they could never pin the women's deaths on John Crutchley, not even Debbie's, the victim with the clearest connection to John. Her last day on Earth was most likely a Friday, January 27th, 1978. She went to John's trailer in Fairfax, Virginia, never seen alive again. Her family did a little digging and found out that Deborah and John had been casually dating for about nine days before she vanished. He was the last person to see her, but his story never changed. Yes, she did come over, but he fell asleep. She was gone when he woke up. But there was no chance that she left her life willingly. Just two days prior, her boss at Texaco, where she was a secretary, told her that they would pay for a few college courses so she could move up in the company, which, you know, had her excited, planning for the future. But try as they might, and they did try, the police couldn't push it any further. Nine months later, Debbie's nude, decomposing body turns up in the woods close to John's trailer. I mean, they couldn't even guess at her cause of death, much less find any incriminating evidence against John or anyone else. No charges were ever filed. And then on November 21st, 1985, while John's second wife, Karen, and their son were out of town, John picked up 19-year-old Laura Murphy in Malabar. So talking to police, Laura told them everything she could remember about the vampire rapist. After he violated and drank her blood the first time, he handcuffed her and put her in the bathtub. And then 
The whole thing happened three more times. The assault in the kitchen in front of the video camera, draining her blood, storing her in the bathtub. And then he finally makes a mistake. The next morning after he took her, he went to work, leaving Laura at the house alone. And he told her, I'll be back soon, but if you try to escape, my brother is here and he'll kill you. Well, Laura was weak. She's on the verge of death from the torture and the blood loss, but she lay in the bathtub carefully listening. She's pretty sure that there was nobody else in the house, but Laura found the strength to make her way to the window and luck was on her side for once. The lock was broken and she managed to drag herself out the window to the road where our good Samaritan stopped to help. And she could lead police straight to the guy's house. Malabar, Florida is not that big. Back in 1985, there were probably less than 2,000 people there. It's near Palm Bay, which is a much bigger city, but Malabar? Not hard for Laura to retrace her steps back to the place where she spent the worst hours of her life. Though armed with a search warrant, detectives knocked on John Crutchley's door around 2.30 a.m. It took no time at all to corroborate Laura's story. There were the syringes, the camera, although the video had already been erased. But John didn't really deny what happened, except he claimed that Laura was asking for it, that she wanted to be roughed up. And they found Laura's ID in the house, along with a stack of others. Some belonged to missing girls, but John had an excuse for those too. He gave them rides, he claimed. They left their IDs behind. So when they searched his office at Harris Corporation in Florida, they found graphic bondage pictures of women. And in some of them, John was seen choking them with his bare hands, but all consensual, he claimed. Local cops knew that they had some kind of deranged man on their hands. So they called the FBI who sent them agent Robert Ressler, the serial killer whisperer. So he agreed with Florida police. John Crutchley was a special kind of sick. He was certain that John had done things like this before and worse. So not only did they find that stack of IDs, but they also found several women's necklaces that John claimed were his wife's, but they weren't with Karen's jewelry. And he couldn't really explain the jar of hair from several different people or the dog collars. John had no animals or the 72 index cards he had each one with a woman's name, her astrological sign, how she was in bed, what she would do. One of them belonged to Deborah Fitzjohn. So they followed up with investigators in Virginia, and then that's how they learned about her connection to John. They also found information relating to highly sensitive government information. So why was that in his house? That's what several government agencies wanted to know. There was talk of espionage charges. He was definitely looking at rape and kidnapping charges, but John blamed pornography, said he got a lot of ideas from a magazine. His wife, for one, did not believe he did it. Well, she believed it, but she didn't seem to understand what it was. In his book, Robert Ressler quoted her saying it was a, quote, gentle rape void of any overt brutality. Girl. Karen, massive understater that she was, tried to stand by her man, but when he took a plea deal, she gave in and filed for divorce. Though both she and John seemed to think that he'd only get a few years, but they were very wrong. The details of what the court knew John did and what they thought he did with all the women that belonged to those IDs, well, 
All in all, it scared the crap out of the judge. And he gave John 25 years with a mandatory parole of 50 years. Though John only did 10 years. They let him out for good behavior in 1996. But his reputation made him persona non grata across Florida. Well, Malabar refused to let him back into the city. Melbourne, Florida wanted no part of him either. Well, finally, they decided on the Orlando Probation and Restitution Center. Much to the city's dismay. Well... These things have a way of working out sometimes, because when John arrived at the probation center, they gave him a routine drug test, not thinking any inmate would be so dumb to violate their parole on the first day out. Well, John did. He tested positive for marijuana. He claimed it was like a secondhand contact high from other inmates, but no one was buying it. He was sent back to prison to serve out his full term under the three strikes law. The first two strikes were rape and kidnapping, but marijuana is the thing that put him away for life. When he went back in, he spent time in solitary for being dishonest. John pierced his genitals 13 times because one of them was meant to have a padlock attached to it. So use your imagination on that one. He claimed he did it as an act of devotion to Karen, who had long since divorced him. From then on, John's prison life was mostly unremarkable, although several inmates claimed that he bragged about killing more than two dozen women. And then it was over. In 2002, he was found in his cell with a bag over his head. Death by autoerotic asphyxia. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.